Section twenty nine of Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Shellhays. Little Journeys to the Homes of the Great, Volume One, by Albert Hubbard. William Shakespeare, Part Two. Drayton, before Shakespeare's time, called Warwick the heart of England, and the heart of England it is today, rich, luxuriant, slow. The great colonies of rabbits I saw at Charlcote seemed too fat to frolic, save more than to play a trick or two on the hounds that blinked in the sun. Down toward Stratford there are flat islands covered with sedge, long rows of weeping willows, low hazel, hawthorn, and places where green grow the rushes owe. Then, if the farmer leaves a spot untilled, the dog-rose preempts the place and showers its petals on the vagrant winds. Meadow-sweet, forget-me-nots, and wild geraniums snuggle themselves below the boughs of the sturdy yews. The first glimpse we get of Stratford is the spire of Holy Trinity. Then comes the tower of the new memorial theatre, which, by the way, is exactly like the city hall at Dead Horse, Colorado. Stratford is just another village of Niagara Falls. The same shops, the same guides, the same hackmen. All are there, save poor Lowe with his beadwork and sassafras. In fact, a cabbie just outside of New Place offered to take me to the Whirlpool and the Canada side for a dollar. At least, this is what I thought, he said. Of course, it is barely possible that I was daydreaming, but I think the facts are that it was he who dozed, and, waking suddenly as I passed, gave me the wrong cue. There's a Macbeth livery stable, a Falstaff bakery, and all the shops and stores keep Othello this and Hamlet that. I saw briarwood pipes with Shakespeare's face carved on the bowl, all for one and six, feather fans with advice to the players printed across the folds, the seven ages on handkerchiefs, and souvenir spoons galore, all warranted Gorham's best. The visitor at the birthplace is given a cheerful little lecture on the various relics and curiosities as they are shown. The young ladies who perform this office are clever women with pleasant voices and big starched white aprons. I was at Stratford four days and went just four times to the old curiosity shop. Each day the same bright British damsel conducted me through and told her tale, but it was always with animation and a certain sweet satisfaction in her mission and starched apron that was very charming. No man can tell the same story over and over without soon reaching a point where he betrays his weariness, and then he flavors the whole with a dash of contempt. But a good woman, heaven bless her, is ever eager to please. Each time when we came to that document certified by Judith Shakespeare, her ex-mark, I was told that it was very probable that Judith could write, but that she affixed her name thus in merry jest. John Shakespeare could not write, we have no reason to suppose that Anne Hathaway could, and this little explanation about the daughter is so very good that it deserves to rank with the other pleasant subterfuge. The age of miracles is past, or that bit of jolly claptrap concerning the sacred baboons that are seen about certain temples in India. They can talk, explained the priests, but being wise they never do. Judith married Thomas Quiney. The only letter addressed to Shakespeare that can be found is one from the happy father of Thomas, Mr. Richard Quiney, wherein he asks for a loan of thirty pounds. Whether he was accommodated we cannot say, 
and if he was, did he pay it back, is a question that has caused much hot debate. But it is worthy of note that, although considerable doubt as to authenticity has smooched the other Shakespearean relics, yet the fact of the poet having been struck for a loan by Richard Quiney stands out in a solemn way as the one undisputed thing in the master's career. Little did Mr. Quiney think, when he wrote that letter, that he was writing for the ages. Philanthropists have won all by giving money, but who save Quiney has reaped immortality by asking for it? The inscription over Shakespeare's grave is an offer of reward if you do, and a threat of punishment if you don't, all in choice doggerel. Why did he not learn at the feet of Sir Thomas Lucy and write his own epitaph? But I rather guess I know why his grave was not marked with his name. He was a play-actor, and the church people would have been outraged at the thought of burying a strolling player in that sacred chancel. But his son-in-law, Dr. John Hall, honored the great man and was bound he should have a worthy resting-place. So at midnight, with the help of a few trusted friends, he dug the grave and lowered the dust of England's greatest son. Then they hastily replaced the stones, and over the grave they placed the slab that they had brought. Good friend, for Jesus' sake forbear, to dig the dust and close it here. Blessed be the man who spares these stones, and cursed be he who moves my bones. A threat from a ghost! Ah, no one dare molest that grave! Besides, they didn't know who was buried there. Neither are we quite sure. Long years after the interment, some one set a bust of the poet, and a tablet on the wall over against the grave. Under certain circumstances, if occasion demands, I might muster a sublime conceit. But, considering the fact that ten thousand Americans visit Stratford every year, and all write descriptions of the place, I dare not, in the face of Baedeker, do it. Further than that, in every library there are Washington Irving, Hawthorne, and William Winter's three lachrymose but charming volumes. And I am glad to remember that the Columbus who discovered Stratford and gave it to the people was an American. I am proud to think that Americans have written so charmingly of Shakespeare. I am proud to know that at Stratford no man besides the master is as honored as Irving. And while I cannot restrain a blush for our English cousins, I am proud that over half the visitors at the birthplace are Americans, and prouder still am I to remember that they all write letters to the newspapers at home about Stratford-on-Avon. In England, poets are relegated to a corner. The earth and the fullness thereof belongs to the men who can kill. On this rock have the English state and church been built. As the tourist approaches the city of London for the first time, there are four monuments that probably will attract his attention. They lift themselves out of the fog and smoke and soot, and seem to struggle toward the blue. One of these monuments is to commemorate a calamity, the conflagration of 1666, and the others are in honor of deeds of war. The finest memorial in St. Paul's is to a certain eminent Irishman, Arthur Wellesley. The mines and quarries of earth have been called on for their richest contributions, and talent and skill have given their all to produce this enduring work of beauty that tells posterity of the mighty acts of this mighty man. The rare richness and lavish beauty of the Wellington Mausoleum are only surpassed by a certain tomb in France. As an exploiter, the Corsican overdid the thing a bit, so the world arose and put him down. But, safely dead, his shade can boast a grave so sumptuous that Englishmen in Paris refuse to look upon it. 
But England need not be ashamed. Her land is spiked with glistening monuments to greatness gone. And on these monuments one often gets the epitomized life of the man whose dust lies below. On the carved marble to Lord Cornwallis I read that he defeated the Americans with great slaughter. And so, wherever in England I see a beautiful monument, I know that probably the inscription will tell how he defeated somebody. And one grows to the belief that, while woman's glory is her hair, man's glory is to defeat someone. And if he can defeat with great slaughter, his monument is twice as high as if he had only visited on his brother man a plain undoing. In truth, I am told by a friend who has a bias for statistics, that all the monuments above fifty feet high in England are to the honor of men who have defeated other men with great slaughter. The only exceptions to this rule are the Albert Memorial, which is a tribute of wifely affection rather than a public testament, so therefore need not be considered here, and a monument to a worthy brewer who died and left three hundred thousand pounds to charity. I mentioned this fact to my friend, but he unhorsed me by declaring that modesty forbade carving truth on monuments, yet it was a fact that the brewer too had brought defeat to vast numbers and had, like Saul, slaughtered his thousands. When I visited the site of the Globe Theatre, and found thereon a brewery, whose shares are warranted to make the owner rich beyond the dream of avarice, I was depressed. In my boyhood I had supposed that if ever I should reach this spot where Shakespeare's plays were first produced, I should see a beautiful park and a splendid monument, while some white-haired old patriarch would greet me, and give a little lecture to the assembled pilgrims on the great man whose footsteps had made sacred the soil beneath our feet. But there is no park, and no monument, and no white-haired old poet to give you welcome, only a brewery. "'I'm on, but ain't it a big un?' protested an Englishman who heard my murmurs. "'Yes, yes, I must be truthful. It is a big brewery. And there are four big bulldogs in the courtway, and there are big vats and big workmen in big aprons. And each of these workmen is allowed to drink six quarts of beer each day without charge, which proves that kindliness is not dead. Then there are big horses that draw the big wagons, and on the corner there is a big tap-room where the thirsty are served with big glasses. The founder of this brewery became rich, and if my statistical friend is right, the owners of these mighty vats have defeated mankind with great slaughter. We have seen that, although Napoleon, the defeated, has a more gorgeous tomb than Wellington, who defeated him, yet there is consolation in the thought that, although England has no monument to Shakespeare, he now has the freedom of Elysium, while the present address of the British worthies who have battened and fattened on poor humanity's thirst for strong drink since Samuel Johnson was executor of Thrale's estate, is unknown. We have this on the authority of a solid Englishman, who says, The virtues essential and peculiar to the exalted station of British worthy debar the unfortunate possessor from entering paradise. There is not a Lord Chancellor, a Lord Mayor, or Lord of the Chamber, or Master of the Hounds, or Beefeater in Ordinary, or any sort of British bigwig, out of the whole of British beetledom, upon which the sun never sets in Elysium. This is the only dignity beyond their reach. The writer quoted is an honorable man, and I am sure he would not make this assertion if he did not have proof of the fact. So for the present I will allow him to go on his own recognizance, 
believing that he will adduce his documents at the proper time. But still, should not England have a fitting monument to Shakespeare? He is her one universal citizen. His name is honored in every school or college of earth where books are prized. There is no scholar in any clime who is not his debtor. He was born in England. He never was out of England. His ashes rest in England. But England's budget has never been ballasted with a single pound to help preserve inviolate the memory of her one son to whom the world uncovers. Victor Hugo has said something on this subject which runs about like this. Why a monument to Shakespeare? He is his own monument, and England is its pedestal. Shakespeare has no need of a pyramid. He has his work. What can bronze or marble do for him? Malachite and alabaster are of no avail. Jasper, serpentine, basalt, porphyry, granite, stones from Paros and marble from Carrara, they are all a waste of pains. Genius can do without them. What is as indestructible as these? The Tempest, the Winter's Tale, Julius Caesar, Coriolanus. What monument sublimer than Lear, sterner than the Merchant of Venice, more dazzling than Romeo and Juliet, more amazing than Richard the Third? What moon could shed about the pile a light more mystic than that of a Midsummer Night's Dream? What capital, were it even in London, could rumble around it as tumultuously as Macbeth's perturbed soul. What framework of cedar or oak will last as long as Othello? What bronze can equal the bronze of Hamlet? No construction of lime or rock, of iron and of cement, is worth the deep breath of genius, which is the respiration of God through man. What edifice can equal thought? Babel is less lofty than Isaiah. Cheops is smaller than Homer. The Colosseum is inferior to Juvenal. The Giralda of Seville is dwarfish by the side of Cervantes. St. Peter's of Rome does not reach to the ankle of Dante. What architect has the skill to build a tower so high as the name of Shakespeare? Add anything, if you can, to mind. Then why a monument to Shakespeare? I answer, not for the glory of Shakespeare, but for the honor of England. End of William Shakespeare, Part 2